This comes from every avenue that we walk in. It comes from bosses at work. It comes from school. It comes from television. It comes from finances. It comes from health, friends and family. And, and tragically, the challenge and the temptation to compromise even comes from within the church. There, there's no walk of life that we can take that is exempt from this pressure. And these pressures confront all of us as we seek to live an undefiled life in a world that is ruled by sin. I, I will tell you, as you study the Bible and you look at the characters in the Bible, much like we will look into the life of Daniel, you're going to see that it is risky in the world's eyes to live a Christian life. If you want to sign up for Christianity and you want to live faithfully according to the Word of God, you are assuming instantly risk. But I also want to tell you some good news. As we will see in the life of Daniel, there is no risk truly in following God. In fact, I'll tell you that it's risky not to follow God. And I'm talking about a risk that is eternal. There are some temporary risks that come with being a Christian in this world, but there are eternal rewards that surpass any risk that we could ever imagine by following hard and fast after Jesus Christ. This is why God gave us the book of Daniel. He's given us this book. He's given us this prophet. He's given us this biography because we're going to look into a little bit of biography here in life in the life of Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego. He's given us these men, these characters, these stories so that we can be instructed so that we can be instructed on how to live in a world that is ruled by sin as people who are devoted to a holy God. And so I want you to join with me in Daniel chapter 1. And let me start by introducing you to Daniel in the context in world history and in the history of God's people where we find ourselves. So in Daniel chapter 1, we read this. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. At this time in history, God's people live in a divided kingdom. We've got the northern kingdom that's called Israel, and we've got the southern kingdom that's called Judah. And, and God has dialed us in on this southern kingdom of Judah, who is reigned by Jehoiakim, the king of Judah at this point. And we see that Jehoiakim is given by God over to Nebuchadnezzar, and a Babylonian exile begins. I want you to understand what's going on in the king's lineage of Judah at this point. I'll take you back five generations before Jehoiakim. Before him, he is the son of Jehoahaz, who reigned for three months. Before him was Josiah, and he reigned for 31 years. And before Josiah was Ammon, and he reigned for two years. And before that, Manasseh, who reigned for 55 years. And before that, we get Hezekiah, a name you're probably familiar with, who reigned for 29 years. It's significant to understand the kings that reigned and ruled in Judah. 
If you read through the book of 2 Kings, you will read each time one of these kings is identified, there will be a phrase after his name, and it goes something like this. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Or it will read like this. And he did what was right in the sight of the Lord. One of the great tragedies in the history of God's people And one of the great tragedies in the history of Israel in this era that we're looking at is these successions of kings, generation after generation, predominantly were were populated with kings who did evil in the sight of the Lord. And the evil they did was they led people astray. They led people to worship false gods. They led people down paths of unfaithfulness to Yahweh. Jehoiakim was one of these very kings. In fact, if you looked into the history, he's reigning at this point. Before him, his father Jehoahaz reigned for only three months. He did what was evil inside of the Lord. But Jehoahaz was the son of Josiah, one of my favorite kings in the history of Israel. Josiah is the great reformer of Israel. Under Josiah's reign, they find the book of the law buried in the back up underneath the temple. They had been without the book of the law for who knows how long. And Josiah, in his faithfulness, reestablishes the reading and proclamation of the word and the adherence to God's law. And he even reestablishes the recognition of the Passover. And so God's people are back on the straight and narrow once again. But tragically, his son Jehoahaz, and here Jehoiakim, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and led Israel astray again. Well, this goes all the way back. Ammon did evil in the sight of the Lord, as did Manasseh for 55 years. And Manasseh comes from Hezekiah, who reigned for 29 years, who did right in the eyes of the Lord. And so we have this this season in Israel's history where how the king goes, so goes the nation. There's a leadership lesson there. We're not going to go there this morning, but how leaders lead people affects the mass of people. And leaders need to be faithful to do right in the eyes of the Lord. Well, Jehoiakim did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And Daniel writes that there's this king called Nebuchadnezzar who comes from the east. And I want you to know that Nebuchadnezzar is the most powerful monarch in the world at this time. No one is more powerful, no one is more influential than this king from Babylon. And he comes and besieges Jerusalem and he takes control of Judah. And this is an account that that Isaiah foretold of 120 years earlier. He told King Hezekiah this would happen to his people. And so immediately here, we understand that Israel finds themselves, finds herself, Judah in this case, in peril And it's all attributable to their unfaithfulness to God. And Daniel says this. I want you to look there in verse 2, the very first phrase. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his, Nebuchadnezzar's, hand. So bad things are happening to Judah. And God is reigning through it and over it. God is not caught by surprise. God is doing the giving of Judah over to Nebuchadnezzar. And so we have here a position that Judah finds herself in of discipline. The Lord is disciplining his people. And Babylon's success in battle is not attributable to Nebuchadnezzar's power or his strategy. It is all attributable to a sovereign God 
who hands Judah over. That's a truth that's going to be weaving itself through this entire book of Daniel. The sovereign God disciplining his people and causing good guys and bad guys to conform to his will so that his glory is established. Now, let's look at what Nebuchadnezzar does by way of introduction, and then we'll move on. Nebuchadnezzar carries the vessels of God from the house of God and takes them to this land of Shinar and puts them in his treasury to his God. There's some interesting things happening here in the Hebrew. I don't want to get too deep here, but if you read this in the Hebrew, when he says he took the vessels of God from the house of God, the true Hebrew has a definite article before God. It's the God. And Daniel wants us to know that there is one and only God. And this Nebuchadnezzar took the vessels from the house of the God, Yahweh, and he removed them to the land of Shinar, and, they, and he put them in the treasury of his Little g God that amounts to nothing in the grand scheme of things. And so real quick here, we see a delineation between God's people who worship the one and only true God and the most powerful man on the earth who worships one of many meaningless little g gods. And there's going to be conflict between these two gods throughout this book. And so Nebuchadnezzar, he takes these vessels from the household of God and he takes them to Shinar. Let me just tell you briefly about Shinar. If you read Genesis chapter 11, you will understand that Shinar is where the Tower of Babel was located. And this is Babylon. So Nebuchadnezzar comes from Babylon, sieges Jerusalem, and takes everything back to where the Tower of Babel occurred. So this is a wicked region. I want you to know that wickedness is at home in Babylon, where where Nebuchadnezzar is taking the vessels of God, and in a moment we'll see that he's taking people, the people of God, to this wicked region. And Nebuchadnezzar takes them and puts them in the treasury of his God. Let me introduce you to his God. Nebuchadnezzar's God's name is Marduk. It is the the, uh, bull calf of the sun god is what Marduk means. And Marduk is a god that they worshipped, and this Marduk had influence over weather, over vegetation, um, over magic and visions and sorcery. And this is a God that was worshipped so that wisdom would be had in all of these areas. And and you can see that there is worship happening, not of the one true God, but of these man-made false gods. And so this is a very, very insulting thing that Nebuchadnezzar has done. He has taken the vessels from the household of God And he's put them in the treasury of Marduk, his God. And so here's where we go. We have this setting. We have this wicked king, this world power king who comes and besieges Jerusalem, not because he's powerful, but because God gave his people over to him for punishment. And we're going to look at three things in the rest of this chapter this morning. And here's what they are. Number one, we're going to see that Nebuchadnezzar strove very hard to compromise Judah's best and brightest youth. Number two, we're going to see that a man was resolved against compromise steadfastly. And number three, we're going to see that God honored that resolve. God honored that faithfulness. So that's our points for this morning's sermon. Come with me now as we look at verse 3. Let's read this together, 3 through 7. 
And then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch or chief of staff, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. And they were to be educated for three years. And at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. And among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah he called Shadrach. Mishael he called Meshach. And Azariah he called Abednego. History dates this book to be written in about 605 B.C. That's when Daniel is a youth. And if you believe the historians, it is assumed that Daniel is probably about 15 years of age. He's a young man at this time. And he was born into nobility of Judah. I gave you the king's lineage on purpose. Josephus, a Jewish historian, claims that, that Daniel comes from the family lineage of Hezekiah. We believe that to be true. So he is of this noble birth. He is wise. He is knowledgeable. He is competent to serve in the king's palace because he comes from high stock. He knows what it's like to live in the palaces. And we also meet here three other young men, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And we are going to look deeply in the next few weeks into these four men's lives. I want you to understand what's going on here. Nebuchadnezzar has a plan for the youth of Judah. He's got a three-year indoctrination that he's going to put them through, and he's going to teach them all things Babylonian. He is going to rewrite their hard drive if he has his will. He's going to wipe it clean, and he's going to load new software right into the minds of these youth. And he does it in three areas. I want you to watch this. Number one, he goes after them intellectually. Nebuchadnezzar wants to indoctrinate the youth of Israel, of Judah, intellectually. And he wants to teach them the literature and the language of the Babylonians. Now, now let's pause for a moment here. What, what Nebuchadnezzar has done, notice, he has not taken all the people of Judah... And indoctrinating them. He has taken their best and their brightest, their youth of noble birth, who are wise, who are good looking, who are strong, and who have an intellect, and who have polish and know how to live in the king's palace. He's taken the best and the brightest of Judah's future, and he's going to indoctrinate them first intellectually with the literature and the language of Babylon. He also wants to teach them the language of the Chaldeans. The Chaldeans are best known as the Babylonian priests and wise men and diviners who can interpret dreams and perform magic. He wants to teach these young Israelite boys those ways. The second thing he wants to indoctrinate in them is their physique. And so he orders them to eat the king's 
food. He orders them to drink the king's drink. So the, the Babylonian diet is going to become normal for these Jewish Israelite young men. And I want you to know that this diet in no way honored the Levitical law. And that's going to come big here in a moment. Thirdly, there's a, a personal indoctrination, if I can call it that. He wanted to attack the very identity of the youth. And we see this in the fact that he renames four men that we're told about. We can assume that he renamed all of the youth. But Daniel was renamed Hananiah and Mishael and Azariah. They were all renamed. And let me just spend a little bit of time on these names before we move on. Daniel's name in Hebrew means God is my judge. He's renamed Belteshazzar, which means Marduk, protect him. Remember, Marduk is the god of Nebuchadnezzar. Hananiah's name means Yahweh is gracious. And he is renamed Shadrach, which means command of Aku. And Aku was the moon god. Okay, Mishael's name was, means this, who is what God is? His name is kind of a question. Who is what God is? And the answer is no one. Well, he's renamed Meshach, which means who is what Aku is. And lastly, Azariah, his main name means Yahweh has helped. And he is renamed servant of Nebo or Abednego. What we have here is an indoctrination of the personality of these people because there was great significance in the name of a person back then, much more than today. And Nebuchadnezzar has indoctrinated them intellectually with literature. He has indoctrinated them physically with food. And now he's indoctrinating them personally by changing their names from names that recognize and honor the God, the one true God, Yahweh, and he's flipped them over and he's named them after pagan gods. This is an all-out assault on the youth, on the future of Judah. It's subtle. Let's change their name. Let's change their diet. Let's change what they read. Let's isolate them over here in Babylon. Get them away from their people over there in Jerusalem, in Judea. It's subtle. And it's a three-year process. We're going to slowly creep into their minds and their hearts. And we're going to corrupt them at their core. And here's what Nebuchadnezzar is about. He's smart. Evil people can be smart. He wants to so devastate Judah by so corrupting their future in these youth that they will never be able to or perhaps even desire to break free from the bondage of Babylon. This is an aggressive assault. A precise, strategic, intelligent, surgical attack on Judah with a goal of having eternal effects. There's much at stake here. Judah's future rests on how these youth are going to respond. 
And they have been attacked in mind, in body, and in soul. And I want to I make an application here this morning. I want to make this very clear to us. Why are we studying the book of Daniel? I want you to know the world that we live in, the global world that we live in, is Babylon. We live in this place that Daniel was exiled to. We just went through the book of First Peter. And Peter opens his book saying, to the elect exiles... And we spend a lot of time through the book of Peter understanding that we are exiles in this world. Our citizenship does not belong here. It belongs in heaven for all of eternity if we're followers of Jesus Christ. Daniel is an exile. He's not in Judah. He's not in Jerusalem. He is in Babylon, a world, a, pl- a land that is not his. He doesn't belong there. And he's getting indoctrinated on every angle so that he will forget who he is. And where he belongs. And so the world that we live in today is, is a large, gigantic Babylon. We need to understand this clearly. And the world is striving to indoctrinate us in every area of life. Just like Nebuchadnezzar surgically attacked these youth. The world we live in is doing this to us as we speak. You just watch sports and commercials today on TV. You you look at car and truck commercials, okay? You look at credit card commercials and this urge to buy, buy, buy and pay later. You look at marriage and family and what the world culture is saying about marriage and family. You look at colleges and universities and you see what's being taught, what was taught to me years ago in the colleges and universities. And you will come to understand that Nebuchadnezzar was not the only king that tried to indoctrinate our nation's youth in a college called Babylon. It it still is happening to this day. And I absolutely believe in college. Let's go, but let's go with a filter, right? And the filter is this. Even when we worship God and how we worship God in this culture is under attack by Babylon. I want you to listen to this. Dateline, November 24th. I hit this last almost a month ago now. The title of this is Sunday Morning Inconvenient for Church Services, says the Church of England. John Bingham wrote this this article and he is all on board with this. It goes like this. Sunday morning is an inconvenient time for church services because people are busy shopping and doing other things the Church of England has admitted. Worshippers are increasingly turning their backs on the centuries-old practice of attending worship on Sunday because other leisure and social commitments have arisen. Let me just pause for a moment here. This centuries-old practice, yeah, it's 2,000 years old. And it's a practice that didn't just start out of some man-made tradition. We meet on Sundays because something big happened on Sunday. Let me hear you. What happened on the first day of the week? Jesus rose from the dead. And we understand from the book of Acts that the apostles started to gather on the Lord's day, the first day of the week, to break bread and to fellowship with one another. 
And so this is not some practice that's centuries old. This is, this is established in Scripture. This is what God established for His people to do in the new covenant. To gather on the Lord's day to worship and to celebrate and to remember the biggest event in human history, the resurrection. But the Church of England admits that it's pretty inconvenient. The admission came alongside new figures showing that attendance at midweek services in cathedrals has doubled in a decade while numbers in the pews and parishes on Sunday mornings continued to fall. The dean of Litchfield, the very reverend Adrian Dorber, said many people still crave quiet reflection but are seeking out less pressurized times in the week to worship than on Sunday mornings. He said weekends are now very committed For most families in an era when life is run at the double. Speaking on behalf of the Church of England, Mr. Dorber said, the fact that midweek cathedral services were likely to be reasonably short was also part of the attraction in why people are not attending Sunday mornings anymore. He said, people often squeeze them into very, very pressurized lifestyles. Whereas at the weekend... You've got commitments with children doing sport, shopping, household maintenance, and other things. Life is run at the double these days, and weekends are very pressurized and very committed. And taking out half an hour or an hour during the week is much more negotiable. It comes out of much more discretionary time than on Sundays. If you read on in this article, you see that within the Church of England, they have this movement called Fresh Expressions, and it's a joint enterprise with the Methodist Church, and they have started almost 2,000 alternative congregations in less than a decade, and these alternative congregations meet in pubs all over England, and they have 20-minute worship services to check off the list and get back into the priorities of life, sports, shopping, Home improvement. The culture in England, within the Church of England, the Church of England is admitting this. And I will tell you that this is happening in the Church of England because the Church of England has compromised on the Word of God. And when they gather, they don't open the Word of God. It's some vicar or some right reverend who stands up and pontificates his opinion about life. But when you open the living word of God, that's worth coming to. And they've not done that. And so all their people are now beginning to forsake something as foundational to Christianity as a Sunday morning, Lord's Day gathering to celebrate and remember the resurrection of Jesus Christ and to look forward to the day that he returns. This article and this condition of the Church of England screams out, they have no God. Other than themselves. They are not centering their lives around the Lord. They're centering their lives around their sports and their home improvements and their shopping themselves. Daniel didn't do that. And we will see that very clearly in the coming weeks and in the coming chapters. Now, one disclaimer. I I do not espouse the greatness of Sunday morning. Josh and I didn't plan this, but Josh spoke strongly this morning about this being the best day of the week, right? The, the pinnacle of the week is the, the moment when we gather as a congregation to celebrate the resurrected Christ. 
I, I don't say this and he doesn't say this for our job security. I promise you. This is not about us having a crowd here on Sunday morning so that we have something to do so that we can draw a paycheck. I promise you it's not about that. It's all about our, yours and mine, eternal security. We gather regularly at this time to secure our eternity. And we invite people to come so that they might secure their eternity. Because without God, your eternity is insecure. And if you know Christ, you keep coming Sunday after Sunday until He comes again to rock-solid solidify your eternal security. I preach, not just for your security, but for mine as well. I'm listening to my own sermon. I've heard it all week, and I need to hear it again. So there's much at stake on these Sunday mornings, and there's much at stake in the world that we live in, and we cannot forsake the gathering. We cannot forsake our God and the provisions that He's given us to snuff out the attempts of Babylon to indoctrinate us against him. It's an urgent, urgent situation that we find ourselves in in this culture. So I don't offer this for job security. I offer this for eternal security. Buy it. Embrace it. Come. Bring others with you. They need this. Let's look now at a man resolved against compromise. We, we see that Nebuchadnezzar is trying to compromise the youth of Judah. And we're going to now look into the life of Daniel very specifically. And we're going to see that he is resolved against any form of compromise against his relationship with his God. So we pick up in verse 8. And here's what we read. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord, the king who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. And then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you. And deal with your servants according to what you see. Daniel was resolved in verse 8, the third word in verse 8. I want you to circle that in your Bibles. Daniel was resolved that he would not defile himself. Christian, what resolve do you have to protect and to grow your relationship with the God? It's the first Sunday of a new year. We are in the age of the year where we make New Year's resolutions. Daniel was resolute. Daniel resolved. Daniel had a purpose for his life. And he stuck to it. Tonight, when we gather, I'm going to spend a little bit of time on New Year's resolutions. I beg you to come. Should we have them? Should we not? If we should, how should we? 
I'm going to put in your hands a tool that's going to help you address this issue of New Year's resolutions. Please come this first Sunday night of the year and load up on this. I'm going to give you a great tool, I think. But I want you to, as a result of hearing this this morning and what I'm going to say tonight, I want you to be a Christian who is resolved not to defile yourself in Babylon. That's the purpose that God's given us this book. And Daniel here, we see that he's resolved not to defile himself with food and drink that comes from the king. What's going on here? Well, it's probably real simple. I don't think we need to get tricky here. The meats that Nebuchadnezzar is offering probably do not fit the kosher diet that was prescribed in the Levitical law. Probably got some pork and catfish going on here, right? Okay, Daniel says, I will be steadfast. I will not defile myself. I will keep my God's law. So I'm not going to eat it. Secondly, this food, the meats, probably were offered to idols. This is an issue that 1 Corinthians deals with. This was meat that was offered to idols. And Daniel says, "Uh uh-uh, there's one God. He's called the God. He's not called Marduk. And I will not eat food that's been offered to him. And so he was resolved because he wanted to stay steadfast to God and God's law. And Daniel's reaction, as we see in this passage, is monumental on three fronts. Listen to this. Listen to this. Three fronts. Number one, Daniel was very, very decisive. He wasn't wishy-washy. He didn't waver. He didn't ponder for a moment. The Bible says, but Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself. He was decisive, and he did not linger there in temptation's presence. If you read through the New Testament, you ought to look up the word flee, and every time, you ought to see how many times we're told to flee sin. Daniel fled it. He was resolved not to defile himself. His usefulness in the kingdom of God and in the rest of this book that we're going to read hinged on this single decision. If he caves here and he takes in this food, we don't have the rest of the book of Daniel. And Israel and Judah does not have a prophet that's encouraging her through the Babylonian exile. So his decision is humongous. If he fails here, he's not in the position to be in the presence of the king who wants his dreams interpreted. And I can't wait to get to those passages. He's going to be there because God honors his faithfulness and puts him in positions to influence even Nebuchadnezzar for his will. Daniel had no room in his life for compromise. And I just want to shout out to our youth. We're talking about a 15-year-old guy here that's swept out of his homeland and taken in exile into Babylon. And I want you to know that decisions that you make, they're small scale today compared to decisions you're going to make 10 years from now. But every choice that you make right now, teenagers, to be faithful for, with, for God will have huge ramifications on choices and situations that you're going to find yourself in 10 years from now. And I urge you, make wise decisions, choose Christ now. Stay steadfast, be young men and women who are resolved to follow fast after the one God.
And you will find yourself in places and in situations that you never dreamed of. Places of honor and places of trial. And in those moments of trial, you will find strength that you never dreamed of because here in the early days of your life, you practiced being resolved after God. So what you choose today will impact where you will be tomorrow in massive ways. There's not an adult in this room that will disagree with me. And I think they can all say with me to you, choose God and be resolved to follow fast after Him now. And we're going to help you do that. We're going to help you do that in a youth ministry. We're going to help you do that next weekend in a retreat. We're going to help you do that on ski trips, on mission trips, wherever. We're going to teach you how to be resolved like Daniel to follow fast after the one God. And we're going to do that while you live in a Babylonian world that's wanting to indoctrinate you against God at every turn. We're with you, okay? Follow him. Daniel, secondly, was modest. He was not an obnoxious, crusty, self-righteous Christian. I am not going to eat that food. Dirty old skanky catfish. He didn't do that at all. He's modest. He asked the authority, the chief of the eunuchs, if he could be excused from eating the king's food. He asked. He respected the authority. And don't forget, Judah was given over to, to Nebuchadnezzar. This is authority that God has put over Judah and over these youth. And so Daniel, even in this moment, doesn't get snarky with the chief of the eunuchs. He puts a request before him. And he asks, would you allow me to be excused from eating the king's food? I don't want to defile myself. So it's a bold request. There's risk in asking this. But he does it with humility and modesty. And watch number three. Daniel was confident in his request he was not self-confident this wasn't a i'm daniel and i'm bigger than this and i i you just watch me you watch me eat vegetables and see what happens no he was confident in god because he knows that god who gave laws and commands if god is followed god will protect and provide and honor his faithful servants we see this confidence in daniel's life So it's a bold request done with humility, but he also is confident that God will not forsake him in this request. And whatever the outcome may be, he trusts God with that outcome, even if it means a flogging or a death. So Daniel did not persuade the chief of the eunuchs. As we see here, God gave Daniel favor in the eyes of this man. God did it. And Daniel trusted him for it. So Daniel's resolve here was grounded in two principles, okay? Remember I said he's decisive, he's modest, and he's confident. I see in Daniel's life evidence of two truths running strong and bold. The first one is this. Daniel feared God and not man. Do you see it? He's not scared of Nebuchadnezzar. He's not scared of the chief of the eunuchs. He fears the Lord who has spoken. And he says, I will not defile myself in my relationship with my God. Psalm 118.6, make a note of this one. It's a short verse. It's one worthy of memorizing in this new year. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? That's what Daniel's doing. He's living Psalm 118.6 out. He's also doing this. 
Daniel also understands a truth that I have proclaimed from this pulpit many, many, many times. Let me start it and you finish it. Secret sin on earth is open scandal in heaven. Daniel believes this, people. Daniel believes Psalm 44, starting in verse 20. If we had forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, would not God discover this? For He knows the secrets of the heart. So Daniel understands clearly that God is the one to be feared. And he understands clearly that even though I've been exiled and I've been removed from my people and all these other youth that have been captured up with me, they're eating of the food and I could probably do this and no one really, really know the difference. He knows God will know the difference. And he does not want to defile himself, not by reputation in the eyes of his people. He does not want to defile himself in his relationship with the God. I have prayed for you. Not every one of you by name, but I've prayed, Lord, whoever would hear this sermon, would they at least walk away this year being resolved not to defile themselves in their relationship with you? Would they do this? Would they accomplish this resolution by fearing you more than man and by understanding that you see what goes on in secret? I've prayed that for you. I will continue as we go through this book to pray that for you. And I ask that you pray that for me. You need a pastor that's living like Daniel. You're desperate for somebody like me to live like Daniel. So pray for me and I'll pray for you. And we'll do church until Christ comes again. And I'm going to tell you, not all of the exiled youth did what Daniel did. We see evidence of it because Daniel said, hey, they're going to eat that food. You stack me up 10 days later against what they look like and let's see who's more buff and more strong and more intelligent and more bright. So we've got a whole bunch of youth that caved in and ate this defiled food. We got four that didn't. That's all we know of. So sometimes it's lonely to be a Christian in Babylon. We're not lonely here, are we? Huh? Are we lonely in this room? No. We have each other. We gather every first day of the week. We're not lonely here, but we're going to leave here, and there's going to be moments in the halls next week. You're going to be lonely. Remember Daniel and his testimony to being resolved to live in a way that honors the Lord. Let's look at what God does to Daniel and these three in response to their faithfulness. Verse 17. As for these four youths, God gave them learning. God did it, by the way. These are not just brilliant guys. God gave them learning. God gave them skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. And at the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them. And among all of them, none was found to be like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. I love the Hebrew names there, by the way, and not the Babylonian names. Therefore, they stood before the king and in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better 
than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. All the followers of Marduk who sought Marduk for wisdom and understanding of visions. Daniel and the three amigos surpassed them ten times. And Daniel was there until the first year of the king of Cyrus. These four received learning. They received skill in all literature. And they received wisdom. And where did they get it? They got it from God. Not from a diet. Not from just tough, independent, resolute John Wayne-ness. It was given to them by God because God honored their faithfulness. When they said, I will not be defiled, God said, I will provide for you. And Daniel got something that the other three didn't. He also got understanding in all visions and dreams. And let me tell you, that's going to play big in the rest of the book of Daniel. That is massively significant. A faithful man resolved to follow fast after God is put in a position and endowed by God to accomplish immense things that have an eternal impact. So immense, so immense that 2,600 years later, we're here this morning talking about it. That's big. And it will be talked about again and again and again until Christ's return. We also see that Daniel is given 70 years of influence. That verse 21, Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. Daniel is going to stay in Babylon through different reigns and rules of different evil kings. And he's going to exist in that place for about 70 years. He traced this to about 535 B.C. So from 605 B.C. to 535 B.C., that's when all of the book of Daniel happens. He's given 70 years of service in God's kingdom. And he's been given millennia of service in God's kingdom as we read about him today. So let me ask you this. How do you view your trials and your temptations as you live out your life in Babylon? Because we are in Babylon. Babylon existed in the Garden of Eden. And it's existed ever since. Okay, this world is Babylon. How do you view your trials and temptations in your daily life? Are they nightmarish inconveniences? Or do you understand that there's a great big God, the God who is behind this and who is using these trials and these temptations to build strength so that you can fulfill your purpose to live out the Christian life in Babylon? I want you to watch as we work through this book the influence Daniel has on Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel will be used by God in such a way that Nebuchadnezzar will sing the praises of Yahweh and not Marduk. You and I can be the same way, insignificant us, if we are resolved to not defile ourselves, can be used to speak truth to amazing people in amazing scenarios that will have an amazing turn of events. Daniel is a forerunner. What happens in Daniel's life and the rest of this book, we're going to see time and time again a pointer to Jesus Christ. 
And I have yet to preach a Christian sermon until I preach Jesus Christ and him crucified and resurrected. And I want to do that for just a moment here. I want to show you how Daniel and Jesus are brothers in being resolved to not defile themselves with the God. Our Christ was exiled in a way. You know, we could say in one way he was exiled. Philippians 2 says that Jesus, though he was equal with God, didn't think equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taking the form of the servant. That, that kind of sounds like being exiled a little bit. He's being isolated. Okay, remember, Daniel and these youth are isolated to Babylon, away from Judah. So, yes, Jesus was isolated when he came to earth, but while on earth, Jesus was isolated. You know this, in Matthew chapter 4, he was isolated in the wilderness. He had been there 40 days, and he had not eaten. And he is confronted by Nebuchadnezzar. His name is Satan. And Nebuchadnezzar, Satan, says to him, You're hungry. I'd like to indoctrinate you. Take that stone and turn it into some bread. And you know Jesus' response. Man can't live on bread alone. But the, the very word of God, I will not defile myself with your offering of turning this stone into bread. And so then he says, okay, take yourself up on the pinnacle. I want to indoctrinate you. I want you to throw yourself off because you've been promised. There's legions of angels are going to come and catch you. I want to indoctrinate you. This is all about you, Jesus. Come on, do this. Jesus stiff arms him again with the word of God and says, I will not defile myself. And then a third time, he wants to change his identity. Doesn't change his name, but he wants Jesus to bow down and worship him. It's just like Daniel having his name changed from God will provide or God is my judge, right? It's the same thing. Jesus says, no, there is only one God that will be bowed down by me too. And he is not you. His name is Yahweh. And so he doesn't compromise. He doesn't get confused on who his God is. And through it all, Jesus remained resolved to be faithful in his relationship with the Father. And by remaining faithful, like Daniel, who was used for 70 years to do incredible things, I think we can say that Jesus was used for eons upon eons to do incredible things. Can we not? Because by remaining undefiled, Jesus Christ remained a perfect sacrifice. A lamb without blemish on the cross. If he's defiled at one point, his death on the cross does us no good. But because he remained steadfast, he is suitable to be our substitute on the cross. And we get a verse like Hebrews 2, 17 and 18. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. To make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted that's me that's you daniel is an example for me to not defile myself but christ is the ultimate and if i believe in jesus christ in his submission to god no matter what the circumstances then i too in christ 
can overcome the temptations of Babylon upon me. And so I draw strength from my Savior. And I urge you to do the same. And I want you to watch what's going on here. By preserving Daniel, God preserved Daniel through this siege of Jerusalem and this exile into Babylon. While doing this, God preserved a nation called Israel. And by preserving a nation called Israel, God provided us a Savior who came from this nation of Israel. His name is Jesus. And by providing us Jesus, God saves a people like you and me. So we are very caught up in this story. From Daniel to present, we see God providing for us. I don't want to read the Bible selfishly, but God has made provisions for us all the way back in 605 B.C. with a faithful prophet that's 15 years of age named Daniel. And by Daniel and Jesus' willingness to sacrifice position, privilege, Reputation, comfort, they, they, they sacrifice those things to have a pure relationship with God. They show us how worthy and noble that lifestyle is. And they show us that God is faithful because God rose Jesus from the dead on the third day. God seated Jesus at his right hand where Jesus sits today and God will send Jesus back again his efforts to not be defiled have been rewarded immensely and we can have confidence and trust too that our efforts to live undefiled in our babylonian world will be rewarded as well so here's the question how devoted are you to the god Are you in any pocket of life compromising right now? Are you in a season of your life right now where you have defiled yourself? Where you have compromised on any front? New Year's resolutions and New Year's turn, turning over to a new calendar year, that, that's a good time to stop and take a quick audit. And, and the source that we audit from is this. Is there any part of your life that has been compromised against this? I urge you this morning. I urge you to devote today. And I need you to come back tonight to hear the rest of this. I, I urge you to make January 4th of 2015 a day of audit. So that you can live the rest of this year out undefiled. And uncompromised. And let's start that now. Tyler, I'll ask you to come forward as I'm about to pray. I want us to take some time here to just do this quiet, personal audit. And I want you to go to the Lord and here's some things that you can do. You can take time today to audit your relationship with God by praying. And here's two things that I want you to pray today. And, and I really want you to do this. And you'll come back tonight better prepared. I want you to pray and ask God to show you where in your life have you compromised. And it might be something giant or it might be something really small, but compromise is compromise. 
You ask God, show me, Father, have I compromised in my relationship with you? And I believe that if you pray that earnestly from your heart, he's going to show it to you. And I want you to be bold to ask that of God. And then secondly, I want you to ask God to give you the resolve, the resolve that Daniel had to stop that. And to quit defiling yourself. And to bless you in living holy and pure and blameless before him as long as he gives you breath. That's what we need to do at New Year's. And that's what we need to do starting now. And again, I need to see you tonight so that we can talk a little bit further through these issues. Okay, let's pray. Father, I pray as I have all week. That you would make us a people that are resolved to not be defiled in our relationship with you. We thank you for Daniel and the example that you have given us through his testimony. Bigger than that, we thank you for Jesus Christ and his perfect testimony to this. Father, I pray that by encountering Daniel and encountering Christ, we will become like them. For your glory, for your honor, and for your namesake. Father, we live in Babylon. We know we do. We lose track of that. When life's going well, we think that this is the Garden of Eden. When life goes bad, we realize, no, it really is Babylon. I ask that you would protect us in this church as we navigate through this world of Babylon in 2015. And I ask that you would protect us as individuals. That we might stand forth in Babylon like Daniel and Jesus Christ proclaiming your glory. And I pray this in the strong name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.